You're listening to the New City Church Sermon Podcast. We exist to love God, to love our neighbors, and to make known the good news of Jesus Christ. To this end, we seek to cultivate a spirit-filled, gospel-centered community that multiplies disciples of Jesus in churches for the glory of God, the joy of all people, and the good of the city. If you'd like to learn more about New City, including service times, discipleship pathways, and opportunities to serve and fellowship with us, please visit us online at newcitykc.org. All right. Good morning, New City. We're glad you guys are all here. Um, I'm happy to be with here, here with you this morning. Pastor Ryan is out of town. Actually, I think he might be back in town, but just got back today or something. So you are stuck with me this morning, but I am excited to be with you as always. I love to get an opportunity to open the scriptures with you and, and um, just invite the Holy Spirit to come and speak to us through his word. And, and today is kind of a fun Sunday because we're in between sermon series. We just, if you're new here, we just finished up a series in Leviticus, and beginning next week, we're starting a new series called Coffee Mug Verses. Um, So this morning is a bit of an interlude, and we're going to be looking together during this interlude at Psalm 19. We're going to reflect on Psalm 19, which is an ancient song written by David that celebrates God's gracious revelation of himself. I do. I love this psalm, and I love how C.S. Lewis puts it. He, in his reflections on the psalms, he says, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. So I'm looking forward to getting into this psalm with you guys today. So if you guys would open your Bibles, we're going to read Psalm 19 together. Or I'm going to read it and ask you to read along with me. We're going to read the whole thing because it's a song. It's meant to be read together, and then we will get into it. Um, so... Beginning in verse 1, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the earth. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The command of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning, and we just ask, God, that you would meet us in your word, Lord. 
that your spirit would speak to us through the words of this, this ancient song, Lord, that you would open our eyes just to see you anew this morning, open our hearts to, to experience you in a new way, God. Would you just um, be very present, Lord, and God, do a work in us as we open your word together, as we listen to your voice, God, as we hear from you. I pray, God, that you would just meet us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, guys. So how many of you guys have heard of Immanuel Kant? Show of hands. Okay, most of you have had some kind of history class. Immanuel Kant was a German philosopher, and he was considered one of the last great Enlightenment thinkers. And he wrestled with many of the philosophical concepts and questions that the earlier philosophers in the Enlightenment, and even before the Enlightenment, had introduced he tried to make sense of things like morality, religion, and existence. But if there was one thing that really vexed Kant, it was the question of how we could truly know something, or how we could know that we know something. In particular, he wrestled with how we could know things of a, of a metaphysical nature, things we could not see or experience firsthand. And at the heart of this dilemma, was a question. How could we know that God exists? Or for that matter, what God is like or what he expects of us? In the end, Kant left the world with more questions than answers. Actually, he literally left the world with more questions than answers, but also he left the world with more questions than answers. I was a philosophy major, and if you study philosophy, once you get to Kant, everything gets frustrating. But that's beside the point. <laughs> On his tombstone is an engraving that's taken from one of his, his seminal works called The Critique of Practical Reason. And this is what it says. Two things fill the mind ever new and with, with ever new and increasing admiration and awe. The more often and steadily we reflect upon them. The starry heavens above me and the moral law within me. I do not conjecture either of them as if they were veiled obscurities or extravagances beyond the horizon of my vision. I see them before me and connect them immediately with the consciousness of my existence. Some heady stuff, I know, but here's Kant, and in his pursuit of knowledge of, of, through pure reason, but he was never able to connect what he observed out there, the starry heavens above, what he experienced within him, that sort of moral law he talks about. He couldn't connect those things with the reality beyond himself. This isn't to say he didn't believe in God, he did, but for him it was always a blind faith, a faith not rooted in God's revelation, but in the hope that a good and moral God might exist and be overseeing the, the unfolding of the cosmos. There's no denying that Kant was a genius, both of his day but also of all time, but he pursued knowledge, he pursued insight and understanding without without basis. In the end, he wanted to know that there was a God without that God's help, without that God's self-revelation. But now, let's contrast Kant's approach to that of David's here in Psalm 19, which we just read, where Kant, riding high on the European, the tide of the European Enlightenment, closed his Bible and looked up 
and found answers to his questions ever elusive. David, having looked up, having looked around, opened his Bible and found it contained not only the answers to his greatest questions, but revealed the very source of those answers. And over the course of this brief psalm, over three movements within it, David celebrates the reality of God's revelation of himself. That contrary to Kant's reasoning, God has revealed himself to us in his creation, the world and the cosmos, in his word, the scriptures that have been given to us, and finally in his son, our rock and redeemer. So the first movement of Psalm 19, as we just read, addresses God's revelation as creator. In the opening six verses of the psalm, David rejoices in God's self-disclosure that his glory is displayed in the heavens and his handiwork proclaimed in the sky above, that his voice resounds throughout the ongoing cycle of day and night, and that like the sun which searches all the earth with its light, the revelation of God reaches to the ends of the earth. This world, this cosmos that we live in, all that is in it is designed to point beyond itself. Whether we behold the sun, the moon, or the stars above, they speak to us of one who is greater still. As the Apostle Paul wrote a thousand years later to the church in Rome, um, he says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that he has made. Like a great artist, God has fashioned creation with his stamp upon it. I can remember one time, I I think this must have been like a year ago, because Sarah, I think, was teaching astronomy or something in school, and we were sitting out on our back porch on a night when it wasn't like 110 degrees, and we were just looking at the super clear sky above us and just kind of marveling at the wonder of it all and talking about just different things, and I forget, again, it must have come from astronomy, but one thing we were talking about is, do you guys realize that like when we look out at the sun burning in the sky above, we're seeing something that's shining at us from 93 million miles away. And at that distance, the light that we're seeing, I think we all know this, takes how long to get here? Eight minutes, right, Liam? Good job. All right. All right, you get the prize. That's my son. Okay, so that's our closest star, That's our, right? That's the sun. The next star is Alpha Centauri. You know how long the light takes to get there from Alpha Centauri? 4.2 years. The sun, eight minutes Alpha Centauri's light, 4.2 years. Now imagine, okay, if we were to travel at the speed of that light and take a quick trip across the Milky Way galaxy, you know how long it would take us? 100,000 years to go from one end of the galaxy to the other at the speed of light. And if that's not enough, consider that our galaxy is one of an estimated 170 billion galaxies in the universe. And scientists believe that might be a small estimate. And I don't know if you guys have seen pictures, the new pictures that come out very recently from the James Webb Space Telescope. I think we have one, if you want to put it up here. Yeah, there it is. This picture is, this is an image captured from 13.3 billion years ago. 
That means the light that we're seeing here comes from 13.3 billion years ago. That's how long it's taken for that light to travel here. So think about this now. Not only has God fashioned all of this, all of that, but the prophet Isaiah tells us that he measures it all in the span of his hand. Meaning as awe-inspiring as the cosmos is, it's small in comparison to the one who created it. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. I can just imagine David, a young shepherd out in the fields at night, looking up at the myriad lights in the sky above him and just pondering the power and greatness of the God who made it all and composing this first part of the psalm, a powerful picture of creation attesting to the glory and the magnitude of its creator. But, as my old philosophy professor used to say, even if you can prove that there is a God from natural science or from reason, you cannot by those means know what this God is like. So who's to say God isn't Zeus up on Mount Olympus, ready to zap you with a lightning bolt if he's in a bad mood? So this is where natural revelation and reason runs out. We can and should recognize the fingerprints of the great artist upon his workmanship, but we cannot know the artist through his work alone. Have you ever thought much about the, um, the great Sphinx of Egypt? You guys know the Sphinx? I'm not as Liam thinks about it a lot. Okay, good, Liam. Um, I grew up fascinated by it. Back in the days before internet, whenever there was like a documentary on Channel 9 or something like that, I'd always be watching this thing about the Sphinx. Was it aliens? Was it proto-Egyptians? Was it pre-flood? Was it post-flood? I was always fascinated by the Sphinx. I still read articles when it pops up. But when all is said and done, we really don't know what led to the carving of this monumental sculpture. We can behold its grandeur. We can marvel at its existence there in the Egyptian desert. We can even speculate as to why it was made. Yet we'll never really know. We'll never know who the artisan was who crafted it, who the craftsmen were who chiseled it out of the rock bed. We know that there was a creator but we can't be sure who that creator was. And it's likewise with creation itself. We need more. We need a greater revelation, a special revelation that not only speaks to God's existence, <clears throat> excuse me, but speaks of who he is. And that's where the second part, the second movement of Psalm 19 heads. Here David sings of God's written revelation of himself as covenant Lord. In verses 7 through 11, he continues the song of God's self-disclosure, only he turns his attentions from the word, or he turns his attention from the word, words written in the cosmos and on creation to the word written in Scripture. The law, David exclaims, is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, and it's good for making the wise simple. The precepts of the Lord are right filling the heart with joy. The commandment of the Lord is pure, giving light to the eye. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous, more precious than gold and sweeter than honey. 
where creation speaks to the existence of God, testifies to the unfathomably great creator. The written word tells us of this God. It speaks of his character and, call, and, and his call upon his people. And these two forms of revelation are not pitted against each other, but they actually undergird one another. Where David, in the first part, um, calls God by name only once in those first six verses, he goes on to name him seven more times in the next eight verses, six of which come in this second, um, second movement, verses 7 through 11. And what's more, in verse 1, David called him El, which is a common designation for God in Hebrew and can be used in reference to any God of the ancient world. But beginning in verse 7 and following, God sings of Yahweh, which, we, which you'll see translated in English as Lord, L-O-R-D, all capital letters. Now, this may seem like a subtle shift, but it signifies a turn in the poem. Where David had been singing about the creator God, he's now making it clear that this creator is one and the same with the covenant God of Israel, with Yahweh. He is telling us that this God who made the heavens and the earth and all that is within them is the same God who pursues his people with a steadfast love. And he has not left us to figure it out for ourselves, but he has revealed himself to us in his word. In the book of Acts, chapter 17, the apostle Paul comes to the ancient city of Athens. Athens at the time, for many centuries, had been the center of Greek learning and philosophy and science, famous for producing such great minds as Aristotle, Plato, and Socrates. Or if you're a Bill and Ted fan, you might call him Socrates. But it was not, but it was not the great accumulations of knowledge that stirred Paul, but it was the myriad of idols, the plethora of idols which provoked his spirit within him. He saw in this city a people who had studied the earth, the sun and the moon and the stars. And yet for all they had learned, they were still lost. Creation spoke to them of something greater, but they knew not what or who. So we're told in verse 22 that Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, in the midst of the people, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. See, Paul, he looked at all the Athenians had learned. He took note of their religious fervor, and he sought to communicate to them that this was all a pointer, all a signpost meant to direct them to something greater. That the God who created everything could not be reckoned by human reasoning. The great artist of the cosmos could not be housed in statues and temples of stone crafted by human hands. No, this God could only reveal himself. And so Paul spoke to him, spoke to them of that revelation. He told the people of how this God had disclosed himself to his people, how he was not distant but near to them having breathed life into all humanity. 
and even now is calling them to repentance and relationship with himself. Now, Paul, though a Jew, was a very learned in Greek science and philosophy and Greek tradition. And in his presentation to the Athenians, he even quoted two of their poets. But more than all that learning and all that study, Paul was a man of God's word. Even before he had become a Christian, he knew the word of God inside and out. And once he became a Christian, the spirit was at work within him. He understood God's word. And he saw in Holy Scripture that which made sense of all else, all else that he had learned. And more importantly, he saw in Scripture he who made all else and made himself known to his people. Like the psalmist David, Paul did not see the study of the natural world and scripture as being in contradiction, but as working in concert. The natural revelation of God undergirding the special revelation in the word, and the word serving to make sense of all that we behold in the world around us. So all creation speaks to us. The beauty of a sunrise, the coolness of an evening, the speeding streak of a comet through the night sky, our yearning for knowledge and understanding, even the sound of children playing in the distance, all say to us, all whisper to us, tole lege, take up and read. Take up and read. Psalm 119 takes the emphasis of this second movement here, God's written revelation of himself as covenant Lord and expands it from five verses into 170. And we're not going to read all 170 today. But in it, the psalmist celebrates in incredible depth and detail the wonder of God's word. Pouring himself out, the psalmist sings in gratefulness to the God who reveals himself to his people. And we're just going to look quickly at verses 129 through 136, which captures this effusion of praise. This unnamed psalmist writes, Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words give light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and repent, or and pant, because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. See, this psalmist here, like, the David, like David before him, like um, the Apostle Paul after, sees in Scripture the person and will of God graciously revealed to his people. And so he, he desires, he longs to know the word better. To see his life conform more and more to his call and pattern. To feel the face of the Lord shining on him. And the voice of the Lord speaking to him through the pages of scripture. And it's this great desire to know the Lord more, to see his face, that leads to that third and final movement of Psalm 19. Because even though God makes his power and glory known in creation and reveals his character and his covenantal love to us in scripture, we still need more. 
As Jesus warned the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it's they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And in this third movement, these final verses, David recognizes his and our need and proceeds to celebrate God's revelation of himself as redeemer. He concludes in verses 12 through 14, having beheld God's glory in creation, his covenantal love revealed in his word, he concludes with the only right response that he can fathom. He cries out, asking God to declare him innocent of sins, of hidden sins, of presumptuous sins or willful sins, that he might be blameless before the Lord. He cries out, asking that the words of his mouth and the meditations of his heart might be acceptable to the Lord, who is his rock and redeemer. See, we have David, who looked up at the heavens and saw the glory of God on display. He looked into the word and saw the goodness and faithfulness of God revealed. But then he looked inside himself. He looked at his life and his heart, and he knew that he fell short. In his weakness and his finiteness, he could not hope to approach the creator of creation. In his sin and brokenness, he could not hope to come safely before the covenant Lord who was righteous and just in equal and perfect measure. But trusting in the Lord's promise to be faithful to his word, David threw himself upon the mercies of God, his great Redeemer, believing that he would make a way for him to draw close. Likewise, Job, who probably lived nearly a thousand years before David, said when he had come to the end of himself, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. See, David in this psalm, like Job before him, didn't know how it would all work out. But he knew that the same God who created everything, who revealed himself to him through the word, was faithful to redeem him. He entrusted himself to this God, believing that he was both powerful and loving, and that even though David couldn't see it in the moment, God would, one way or another, forgive him and redeem him. David's confidence was that the creator God of Genesis 1, who spoke into darkness light, was also the covenant God of Genesis 15, who said to Abraham, I bind myself to you and to your children and your children's children. But he was also the redeemer God of Exodus 2, who heard the cries of his people in Egypt and sent Moses to deliver them from bondage. David had faith that God was who he said he was, and and would do what he said he would do. And if, church, if, if David's confidence was sure, ours is even more so. 
for what David glimpsed from afar, we know now in person, where David, like Job before him, longed to look upon the face of his Redeemer. We have beheld the revelation of God's Redeemer in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As the apostolic author put it in the beginning of Hebrews chapter 1, he said, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by, his, by the word of his power. And after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Church, we may have confidence that God is not merely a distant creator, some unknown God that we cannot come face to face with, but he has taken on flesh and dwelt among us. We may know he's not just a stern covenant maker. Excuse me. Losing my voice here, guys. We may know that he's not just a stern covenant maker or or a strict lawgiver, but he has lovingly taken the weight of that covenant upon himself and fulfilled the requirements of the law on our behalf. And we may be sure that he is our gracious redeemer because Christ, as Christ laid down his life on the cross for us, he rose again, defeating death. And even now he is seated at the right hand of God the Father where he makes intercession for us. Psalm 19, albeit written nearly a thousand years before the birth of Christ, anticipated his coming. What David longed to see, we now confess each time we lift high the name of Jesus in prayer and in praise. Every time we cry out to him for forgiveness in thanksgiving, we, we recognize the longing of David in Psalm 19. As Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 and following, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things... <clears throat> were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in, and in him all things hold together. All of creation points to him. All of holy scripture testifies to him. And we, church, his redeemed, who are indwelt by his Holy Spirit, we now bear witness to him. All proclaiming the power and the glory, the goodness and steadfast love, the grace and the mercy of our creator God, our covenant Lord, our Savior and Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen.